Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schirmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. And Happy New Year. That's the first time I've had the opportunity to wish you that, and it will probably be the last because as we get into late January, it starts to become a little bit tired, I think. By February, for sure, uh, it's over. You get some people like, Happy New Year! It's like, dude, it's St. Patrick's Day. Okay, relax. <laughs> I uh, I hope 2023 has gotten off to a great start for you. Uh, just a reminder of the adjusted schedule for the podcast. The episodes will be coming out every other week from now through the summer. Uh, many upcoming events happening this spring that I'm going to be at, and I thought I'd share those with you as I did through the fall. Uh, there's the summit on PLC at Work, the big summit that happens in Phoenix, Arizona every year. That's going to be February 28th through March 2nd. Um, I'll be presenting on the first, uh, but that conference is a three-day conference there in Phoenix and happens every year. Grading from the inside out, we're going to do another virtual training, two days. First day will be April 4th. The second day will be April 11th. So if you're interested in that virtual training, that's available to you. Standards-based learning in action, that two-day training is going to be in Idaho Falls, Idaho. April 20, uh, Actually, April 13th through 14th will be the dates on that. The assessment and grading conference, that's in Atlanta, Georgia, April 24th through 26th. I will be presenting on the 24th and 25th because on the 26th and 27th, I have the grading from the inside out face-to-face two-day training in Salt Lake City. And of course, we'll finish up the spring with the Assessment Center Institute. We've got a big conference happening in Las Vegas. That's going to be May 24th through 26th. So I'll have links in the show notes for all of those events, should they be of interest to you. And, and of course, you can check out the Solution Tree website as well. Okay, thanks for tuning in again this week. A big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. And of course, a big thank you to longtime listeners. I certainly appreciate all of you. This week, my guest is Jan Shapui. Jan is a friend and certainly a key mentor in my growth in assessment and my assessment practices and my assessment journey. Her expertise is tremendous. She, of course, was a driving force behind the Assessment Training Institute as she, along with Rick Stiggins, Judy Arter, and her and her husband, Steve, Steve Shapui, they really did shape the assessment narrative both in North America and around the world in the early part of the 2000s. So really excited to have Jan on. And in Assessment Corner, I'm going to talk about how grades should be anything but arbitrary. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Jan Shapui is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week by coming clean. My one-word attempt for 2022 was an epic failure. Now, last January, I came on the pod and I told you that my one word was going to be impact. That I wanted to have an impact and that I wanted to be impacted. And I proceeded to go about the business of 2022, and I rarely gave it a second thought. Now, don't get me wrong. I was impacted. I'm not going to talk about whether I had an impact or not. That's for others to judge. I was hoping that was the case, but that, again, that was my intent. Um, and I'd like to think I did. But again, that's not up to me to judge. But, but I was impacted in so many ways through 2022 by the phenomenal guests I've had on this podcast the interactions I've had with so many of you, the listeners, uh, the interactions I've had with educators that I get to work with on a weekly basis in the workshops I conduct, I get impacted all the time. Now, you might think that as a speaker and a consultant and a workshop facilitator, it's kind of a one-way street, but I can tell you that every interaction I have with teachers and educators and principals, et cetera, it also feeds me. 
It, of course, adds to my repertoire, and it certainly keeps me grounded on what those in the field are experiencing. So while I might not be in the classroom right now, I interact with classroom teachers and principals on a weekly basis. I was impacted by the people I met, the different cultures across the United States and Canada and around the world, you know, the history, the scenery, all of it. My epic failure was that I never talked about it. I never brought it up. And it was most certainly not a part, like an active part, of my daily or even weekly existence. I don't know, maybe it was the wrong word. <laughs> when in doubt, blame the word, right? Uh, just like when we try something new and it doesn't work, we blame the program or blame the idea. It couldn't possibly be me doing it wrong, right? No, in this case, with my one word, it was definitely me. I can't really explain it. I had every intention of doing updates on social media and on the podcast, but I never got around to it. I never made it a priority and, and never making a pri priority is probably how I should phrase it. So with all of that, I'm going to try it one more time. If it doesn't work, then I'm just going to have to succumb to the fact that I'm not a one word guy. It's just not working for me. And no, I'm not picking a new word. I'm going right back to the same word I had last year. I'm going to write this ship. I'm going back to impact. I'm going to continue to focus on having an impact with the work I do, but I really want to put my energy into being impacted by the people in my life, the people I meet, and the experiences I have. I have so many great people in my life, family, friends, so many people who inspire me, and I want to pay attention to that so I can tell them how much they impact me. I meet so many passionate educators as I travel doing the work I do, and I want to make sure that they know how much they've impacted me and how much I see what they're doing. I have the opportunity to experience so many amazing things uh, in, in my life for which I am truly grateful for, and I want to make a concerted effort to pay attention and document how I'm impacted by those opportunities as well. The intention really wasn't the issue last year. It was the actually doing of it. It was the keeping track of it and being aware of it. So right now, I, I guess my plan is that I'm, I'm thinking I will reflect each day on something small, medium, or large that impacted me with the intention of doing a weekly or a bi-weekly tweet or an IG story or TikTok or something to highlight how I've been impacted throughout, throughout 2023. All right, so, so here we go. I'm taking one more shot at it because... You know what? I actually love the idea of having a yearly focus, of having a word that sort of filters your day-to-day -day life. That's why I'm taking another shot at this, because I really like the idea. It's just that my 2022 <laughs> attempt was an epic failure. So here we go. Here we go again. My one word for 2023 is impact. I'll keep you posted. Joining me this week is my friend, my mentor, 
and someone who is on my Mount Rushmore when it comes to influences on my career. It's Jan Shapui. Jan has been a classroom teacher teaching grades four to nine. She's been a curriculum developer and a staff developer. In 2001, Jan and her husband, Steve, joined Rick Stiggins and Judy Arter at the Assessment Training Institute in Portland, Oregon, and collectively and in various combinations, the four of them have written a series of books aimed at improving teachers' knowledge about the use of high-quality classroom assessment. Jan is now an independent consultant working with teachers, academic coaches, professional development specialists, and administrators to establish classroom practices in which assessment supports learning for all students. Now, my very first personal story here, my very first assessment training ever was with Jan at the Assessment Training Institute in Portland, Oregon back in 2004. Uh, It was within the first few hours of that training that I was blown away by the possibilities that assessment could have for my then middle school math classroom. And I owe a lot of that to Jan. And so I have to say, I am beyond excited to have Jan here with me today. Jan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's it's great to be able to talk to you um, and, and to do this podcast with you. So thanks for inviting me. I am so thrilled to have you here. It's great to see you. Um, I owe, I really do have to say, I owe so much of my success to you and your husband, Steve. Both of you have been so gracious and supportive of me in the early days of my assessment journey. Uh, as I got started, provided me with some just wonderful opportunities to expand myself and, and, and find my voice in all of this work. And so uh, I honestly will never forget uh, the influence and support that you, Steve, Rick, and Judy uh, provided to me in those early days. Honestly, I, I'm just thrilled to have you here. Um, so I want to start uh, the, with the big question, the overarching question, uh, which is something I actually don't know that I've ever asked you before. And so many of know you, of course, and I know you, of course, have been influenced by you as Jan Shapui, one of the driving forces behind ATI and setting the assessment agenda back in the early 2000s. But you were once not that. You were Jan Shapui, the classroom teacher. So where and when did your passion for assessment begin? Where did this come from, 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 from your perspective? Well, um, I actually, I taught grades four through nine and, yep. um, and when I taught and I loved teaching, I had, I'd been a, I'd waitressed my way through college and, uh, and it took me several years actually to, um, get a teaching credential. And when I finally became a teacher, I, I remember my first year of teaching, I would walk around my classroom and I would, I would think, I can't believe they pay me to do this. This is so cool. I just, I really love teaching. And uh, then my second year, I moved um, to a different district and I walked around my classroom and sometimes I thought they don't pay me enough to do this. <laughs> um, so um, over the course of the first several years of teaching, as I really learned how to teach, um, I realized that I love teaching and that I was doing, I felt like I was doing good things with the teaching hand. And I was was engaging students. We were having fun. They were learning. Um, I was, uh, um, we were doing active um, learning and, and every day had something different in it. And, and I loved that whole part of teaching. And, uh, but then here comes the assessment hand and it's kind of like eating up all the good that the, uh, that the teaching hand did. When assessment came around, I felt as though um, the class just, it sort of deflated. It was, uh, we weren't really um, in that same joyful learning mode at all. And I saw a lot of damage that I thought happened as a result of assessment to students. And so I was really uh, quite dismayed and upset by all things assessment, if you will. <laughs> and uh, 
because they just didn't seem to be going in the direction that, that I had envisioned teaching and learning would go in. And um, I started experimenting with a few things and, um, and I started reading and this was in actually in the 1980s mm-hmm. and two people were writing about um, assessment in the 1980s, classroom assessment. And one was um, Rick Stiggins and one was Grant Wiggins. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew Grant, Grant and I had gone to college at St. John's um, together and uh, we played basketball together and his nickname was Rocky. And, uh, oh. you know, and so I looked at, I, you know, I knew that Grant had, had moved into education and was writing, but I thought, you know, what does Rocky know? <laughs> So, uh, apparently Rocky knew, knew quite a bit. Um, yeah. But uh, so I read Grant and I read Rick and I found them both to be extremely um, uh, motivating and providing me with many, many answers as to why assessment was such a horrible, miserable experience in my classroom. And the upshot was that it was horrible, miserable because I didn't know what I was doing. Mm. And um, so um, I... Um, I experimented with both of their work and I found that Rick Stiggins work, his, his early work helped me understand the technical aspects of, of, of assessment accuracy. One of the things that I had been quite concerned about is I wasn't really sure that I was even providing accurate results and students where I was teaching students were beaten because of grades or they were, you know, or they were restricted, all kinds of things were happening in a punitive and a rewarding way. And, and I just, I, the burden was uh, was too great. Mm-hmm. So when I, um, you know, when I realized that I I could make my assessments much more accurate and that I could they could these grades could actually reflect what students had opportunity to learn, it gave me a great sigh of relief. And uh, and and I realized then that um, that it, it isn't assessment that's the problem; it's what we don't know. And. And then the um, the student involvement piece is one that I really picked up first from Grant Wiggins, mm-hmm. and um, was closest to my heart because that was closest to the way that I taught um, student involved teaching, student involved learning, student involved assessment um, was just a, a natural flow, but also an aha, and um, and so I began putting those things into practice in my classroom, and. Um, and then actually, um, we, several of us had gone to um, Rick Stiggins' very first train the trainers um, with, with VCRs. Um, and uh, we learned how to, how to give these different workshops on different assessment topics with, by stopping the video for discussion and things like that. And, uh, and so I came back to my district and, um, and I gave a presentation to the administrative council, to the administrators and the um, central office people about assessment accuracy and how it really did hinge on a clear vision of, of the intended learning. And it, it stirred up quite a bit of discussion and we ended up in a several years long project in the early 80s, or no, this is probably early 90s, sorry, early 90s. Early 90s, yeah. To get really clear about what our intended learning was. So um, I was asked to leave the classroom. So I thought, okay, I'll leave for a couple of years and um, worked on curriculum um, development to make sure that our curriculum was in good shape. And I also did some work with um, teaching people the fundamentals of assessment literacy. We did move away from those videos. Um, 
Um, <laughs> but I, I have definitely been the person who stops video for exercise. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I found that as I that as I got more deeply into it, I wanted to learn more. So I continued mm -hmm. to study and I continued to follow the work of Rick and others who were working in the field. Of course. And um, and then it, it just it turned into um, basically a full time job of helping people understand more about assessment. Now, I never intended to leave the classroom. I never intended to focus on assessment, but. Um, just as in teaching, when I moved into middle school or junior high at the time, it really felt like I was working in the area of greatest need, um, that, that, you know, just having a heart for that age student was a, a pretty important aspect of, of teaching well there. Mm -hmm. um, same with assessment. It seemed to me in education to be the area of greatest need, the thing that we perhaps knew least about how to do well and how to use appropriately. So I decided to make that my career. So I did. So, t so take us from, uh, you, you attend Rick's training, the train, the trainers training, uh -huh. um, with the VCRs and all of that, <laughs> and then fill in the gap between that. And suddenly 2001, you and Steve are joining ATI. Um, yeah. what's the story behind that? How did, how did that become, uh, there's a lot of parallels there for me. I because my yeah. second training with you was leading professional development and assessment. <laughs> I came back two months later and took that training, and then you know a few years later was presenting at the ATI conferences yep. and keynoting, etc. So, so uh -huh. I'm curious, how did you go from being a participant in Rick's workshop to 2001 joining ATI? How did that happen? Well, um, so I'm I'm starting to do these these presentations and. Uh, and our, our state, Washington State, is also moving to a um, figuring out what our essential academic learning requirements are. And I, I get involved in that project at the state level as well, um, developing a state level um, set of learning expectations. And, and then we move into the assessment phase. And because I had been working with Rick and because I had been doing these trainings, I was working at the state level as well. Um, in our, actually, I was attached to our local educational service district, and I was doing workshops for um, for districts about assessment literacy. Really, what does it mean to have accurate assessment? How do we know our assessments are giving us information that is that is accurate and usable? Um, but there's a little gap between just pushing the button to start the training and then being able to go around the state and give these workshops. So. Um, I wasn't real comfortable with the pushing the button and give because there were a lot of questions people had that I couldn't answer. And uh, so I would I'd be giving one of these workshops and at a break, I would call Rick. I mean, I, I had his number and I was so I was so shocked that I had the nerve to call Rick. But <laughs> but I would call Rick and I'd say, Rick, these people are asking these questions. How do you answer them? And so he'd tell me how he would answer them, or he'd, he'd ask me questions, and I'd figure something out, and then I'd go back and I'd say, well, Rick says. And, <laughs> and then after a while, I realized that there were, perhaps I could change the training enough mm -hmm. so that we didn't run into those questions, so that we, we anticipated them. So really, by, by hearing people's questions, by, by listening to them, and by thinking about how does this work, not just as a canned set of trainings, but in everyday application in everybody's classroom, um, and then modifying my my workshops and my materials so that I was incorporating 
what I was learning both in at first in in doing this in my own classroom and then in working with others as they did it in their classrooms. So I I developed a series of presentations and workshops and um, conference presentations that um, sort of evolved out of the necess my necessity to not be so bad at this. Um, <laughs> you know, just, you know, it's like, how do you get better at something? Well, you be bad and you keep and you don't quit. You just right. do it because it's the right thing to do. And you just keep you just keep looking at, well, what didn't work and what do people need in order to understand that better? So I did that for, I don't know, maybe that would be about nine years total, yeah. actually. And Rick, um, somewhere in there, Rick started um, referring work to me, um, work that he couldn't do. And I have to say, it was never Hawaii that got referred to me. <laughs> it was often of something not. cold in the winter, sometimes <laughs> in Canada, as a matter of fact. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So right. I got to work in lots of places I would never have visited otherwise. And right. I had the opportunity to interact with people whose education systems were very different than mine, which really helped me think more deeply about how do we make these core principles applicable in every classroom, um, in, in any district anywhere. And that really, I think when I got to that point was when, um, I, my husband and I were both really ready to do this work full time with Rick, not just with him on the other end of the phone. And in, and parallel to your um, career, um, <laughs> you know, I Rick invited me to present at conferences, and and I got better at that. And uh, yeah. and before he asked us to join him at at ATI, and then at ATI, starting in two thousand one, I think what we did is I think we built a school of thought. And you were one of the first people in that school of thought who really took it and ran with it and took it far beyond where the four of us could have taken it from our little perch in Portland. <laughs> and that really was our mission to yeah. do this, not just a push button and stop tape for exercise, but, but to give our materials as freely as possible, to give people mm -hmm. as much preparation as we could in a reasonable amount of time and then give them free reign with the materials so that they could take this and make it work in their contexts in as many places as possible. And you were part of that, that go forth and multiply. And uh, you are, um, you know, you have so far exceeded um, anything that any of us have done in a number of ways. So we're, um, I'm pleased to be invited to be here. You, uh, you are so gracious. And I, I have to thank you for that. I, I really do. I, I, I cannot speak highly enough about Again, I'm going to stop doing this, listeners, I promise you, but uh, I, I cannot say enough about the, the mentorship and the inspiration and the guidance and the support that uh, all of you, but, I, but I, ha I will have to say that yourself and your husband, Steve, in particular, uh, were incredibly supportive of me in the early days and, and inspired me to, to take, I, I don't know if I've exceeded expectations or not, I appreciate you saying that, but you know, standing on the shoulders of giants is what comes to mind when I think of my career, and so I, I will forever be grateful. Okay, I'm going to stop doing that now because I could spend all interview talking about how wonderful you are and how brilliant you are and how you've inspired me and all that, but I'll stop doing that because we need to have a real conversation here. <laughs> okay, here we go. All right. I want to ask you, Jan, let's start on the positive side of the ledger. Let's let, I'm going to ask you to generalize a little bit, even though we know that educators and schools are at all different places and various levels of success and all that. But I want to ask you 
Um, where do you think we're getting it right collectively in education when it comes to, or maybe even where we're exceeding expectations from your perspective, when it comes to classroom assessment, especially assessment for learning, where are we, we're going to get to the other side of this conversation, but where are we getting it right, do you think, collectively in assessment now compared to where you might have thought we would have been in 2001 when you looked ahead to say 2022, you look ahead 20 years and think, I think we're going to be here. Where are we exceeding your expectations in terms of our classroom assessment work? Well, um, I actually, I don't know that I had expectations. I had, I had great hopes. Um, okay. and, and we are still in the midst of the great hope um, uh, because it moves person by person. So, um, so as people learn about assessment for learning practices, as they learn about the, about the approach to learning that incorporates assessment as a um, you know, as a, as a guide um, to learning, um, they they adopt and refine and and develop things that are um, that are extremely powerful. So, one of the things that I have seen is just all of the different ways people have implemented things that, you know, in my work that I have shared with them and and made them work in ways that I couldn't even imagine. So um, the fact that the, you know, the things that I've created or the things that I've taught have got not just grown legs, but really, um, really turned into much more powerful um, instructional interventions was something that I had not envisioned. Right. Um, Do you have an I example? Think, like, is there an example of, of something that you've seen where somebody went in a direction or took one of your tools or one of your strategies and kind of took it to a place that you hadn't imagined? Well, just the um, the there's an activity that we that we've been doing for a very long time in our in our workshops, and we call it UB George. Oh, I and know it well. Yes, yes. And in that activity, that activity came actually it came out of um, my daughter uh, was in third grade. She came home from school from third grade with a math paper, and it had a minus three and an M and a smiley face at the top. Yeah. And I said, "Gee, Claire, this looks good. What do you think this means? You know?" And she said math? And I said, yeah, what do you think this means you need to work on? And she said, math. <laughs> and so I did what any mother would do. I went to the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics website. This was before the, um, before the Common Core. I went to that website and looked each one of those problems up to figure out what the learning target was underneath it, because I wanted to be able to talk to Claire about what, you know, what does this paper show you that you know, and what does this show you that you need to work on? And, um, and, and so out of that grew, and, and so we went over it um, with the learning targets and she said, oh, I see what I did. I always make that mistake on one of them. And on one of them, she said, I don't get it. I don't know why that's wrong. Um, I don't know how to do that one. And the third one, she said, I don't think she's taught us that yet. And I <laughs> thought, isn't that a perfect array of why kids get things wrong? Now, I'm sure there are other reasons too. But out of that grew, I, I began to think about how could a teacher set an assessment up so that students could do that thinking without their mothers needing to um, be able to manipulate um, the <laughs> NCTM website. And so I, I created this little form, just a little form that was that had the learning target on it. And, and then students were to mark right or wrong. Did they get their problem right or wrong? And then they were to do a simple analysis of 
of uh, it started out as simple mistake or I don't get it. Um, mm -hmm. Actually, it started out simple mistake and then further work. But some teacher pointed out to me that no kid is going to mark further work. So we changed it to don't get it. Um, and that that simple little form has spawned so many different applications of not just um, for quizzes but uh, or for retakes, but just a rethinking of the mm -hmm. students' information needs. And why don't we give them the ability to look at their ass assessments and, and determine where their strengths are and what they need to work on before we put them into a, um, a summative assessment? So um, in so many places, that has changed the understanding of how formative assessment used by the student can be a powerful tool to increase learning. Um, and I've seen many, many different iterations of it, but it's that, that one simple idea that uh, mm -hmm. that was a fulcrum, like a, a fulcrum for where you put the lever to move, to, to really, you know, to move the energy yeah. from summative to formative. For sure. Uh, Claire's Math and uh, <laughs> UB George are two <laughs> iconic uh, activities. Uh, I remember them well. You have used them uh, in trainings uh, and, and iterations of that. You're absolutely right, Jan. Uh, I think the, that there's always, what I learned, there's always different, you know, places that people take them in terms of, but what I learned from that activity, which was the eye opener for me, you know, almost 20 years ago, was how important it is not just to look at the end result, but to do an item analysis and think about why mm -hmm. I was wrong. Was it a simple mistake? Do I need more study? How mm -hmm. am I going to address that? How will I avoid making that simple mistake? And taking that deeper dive and that more specific uh, look at my assessment results as a student and putting the students at the center of that. Again, for me, 20 years ago, it seems common sense nowadays, but when I go back 20 years ago, that was a a forward-thinking, very progressive thought around classroom assessment. Assessment was something teachers did to students. And, mm -hmm. you know, ATI and you specifically and Rick were the first to really open my eyes to this idea that students can be at the center of, of the experience. And I think, you know, that's a, that's a huge lesson for me. Let's flip the question around now. Um, I, you know, this is going to sound harsh, and I'm not trying to be critical, but where, where do you think we might be still getting it wrong? Or maybe there's something that collectively we're still missing or not quite getting right when it comes to assessment for learning. Yeah. Uh, well, I, there are a couple other things I want to just tap. I, I want to lead into that by saying what I think okay. we are still getting, we're getting right. Okay. That is, over the last 20 years, there's been a, just a, a, a seismic shift in the understanding of the importance of assessment for learning right. to, um, to student well-being, to actually um, increasing achievement and motivation, mm -hmm. um, and understanding that it has to happen during the learning. Um, you know, in the early days, it was we did formatives and then we do summatives, and right. and 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 really an approach that it was just a collection of practices, and that we could do a little of this, you know, pick from column A and column B, and we would call it formative assessment. Mm -hmm. um, that um, and then also, as you pointed out, understanding that it's not just what teachers do with the information, what decisions they make, but also just to fine tune um, their instruction or for course corrections, but also that the student as a decision maker is um, in desperate need of this information and that when students have it, they choose to learn um, that it that it is a motivational touch point for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um where we where we might get it wrong or where we might 
um, where we might not be there yet is, is a continuation of what you were talking about with, with having the students look at their work and say, you know, go, go more deeply into it. And that is um, really where we want the students to be engaged in, in, in dialogue, in, in enough dialogue and enough talk about their learning that they, um, that they aren't just analyzing this one little piece, but they are turning it into a, a self, um, kind of a metacognitive piece, a, a deeper understanding of self as a learner. Um, we, uh, you know, we define teaching as, um, or we define good teaching often as, as engendering or, um, or, or moving along substantive relevant learning. And, and that that's really the heart of teaching. And I, and I think, and this is, this is for me, this is at the heart of, of assessment as part of teaching and learning um, that are an equally important um, goal for effective teaching. In other words, a component that if it isn't there, we might not say the teaching has been effective. Mm -hmm. is that we create competent, confident learners. And the assessment piece is the way anything we do, anything students do, we put something on it and they look at it. That's the point at which they make decisions that will either further their learning or stop it. Right. So the how do we teach students? How do we help students? Um, to approach their work with from a learner stance how do they how do we teach them how to learn how do they approach mistakes how do they live with not yet and not quit what self-talk do we teach our students um, to do with their assessment results when they get a re when they get results do they are they meaningful to the student um, do we know they're meaningful to the student are we engaged in dialogue with them, not just about their grade or their mark, but, but about what they understand? Do we do classroom? Are we engaged in, in um, Socratic type classroom dialogues where students are going more deeply? Um, and this is where the boundaries between assessment and, and teaching and learning all sort of fuzz up, but they all contribute to that, that full picture. Mm-hmm. You look, I, I love that. Uh, it is through ATI that I learned first that uh, the person doing the assessing does the learning. Uh, yeah. That is something that uh, all four of you instilled in me in the early days. And I, and I love that distinction between, you know, the capital F doing the formatives as kind of a noun versus thinking about assessment for learning as being more the verb and the action that happens within the classroom. I've been saying for a number of years that I think one of the most underutilized formative assessment strategies is getting kids to talk to each other about their learning. And you mentioned that. So why do you think, let's, let's take this angle. Why do you think it, it's still something that maybe some educators are reluctant to do in their classroom where you know, I put a prompt on the screen or I put a challenge or, or a problem on the screen and I say to students, talk about how you would approach that. Why do you think there's still a little bit of hesitation on educators' parts to just get kids talking to each other about their learning? I think uh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, um, I try to address it every time I teach in that mm -hmm. I try to model strategies and then right. I, I try to do metacognitive teaching in my workshops that, that say, now notice, 
Notice what you learned by having this conversation. Mm. Um, notice how much more you learned than if I had just been up here talking and then you had to do work. Notice. So I think that for many of our teachers, it was not a um, common way of learning themselves. Mm-hmm. So they may not have had a lot of experience with that, with that type of pedagogy, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, they, and then it's also a matter of, um, and I know that over the years, one of the things that, that I have gotten better at is crafting the types of questions that elicit the kinds of conversations that will lead to deeper learning. Right. And, uh, the longer you teach, the more any, anything, the more you are aware of misconceptions or places that someone is going to not get it or go sideways. And so having those questions in, in your head, just thinking in advance about what, what misconceptions or what, what wrong paths do you want people to recognize and avoid before they take them? Mm-hmm. So crafting your questions or sharing an example or a non-example um, to help people um, understand uh, the value of of something as simple as think pair share but not think pair share I mean, right. it's not <laughs> there's no magic in think pair share there's right. magic in being confronted with something that that provides a little cognitive dissonance or a little challenge right and then bouncing that off against somebody and then listening to what other people have to say and then participating and um, and knowing how to do that, how to craft the questions, what to have students talk about, um, mm-hmm. the um, the questions that you ask are really assessment questions because you are prompting for understanding for different patterns of reasoning. You are you are furthering learning through questioning, and uh, I think that is a I think that is a um, it's a skill set that we haven't haven't focused on in pre-service and uh and i focusing a bit more on it in my own work just to help people um have the classroom be in a fully engaged and inclusive environment um there's a lot of research that we know about the students who participate are the ones who get better and and we are allowing not you not not the audience but the people who aren't listening um (laughs) Those people maybe are allowing students to opt out of learning, but because they're opting out of these um, these extremely important um, mm-hmm. conversations, learning conversations. So I think it's a combination of understanding the power of it, mm-hmm. of having just some of the strategies that you need, and then and and then the time to consider the types of of questions that you want students to confront in order to make it an engaging, meaningful, motivating, and deepening, enriching experience. Yeah, I think you bring up a fair point about modeling. I think those of us who are responsible for uh, professional development, um, you know, workshops, et cetera, we do bear a responsibility to share strategies and, and model for participants how, how this might look in a classroom. I think on their participants' part, they, they have to have the willingness to put students at the center of that experience, and we have to help them sort of see what the possibilities are, right? And I think you also bring up a really good point about the importance of crafting the prompt or the question and being very specific about what you're asking so you do elicit the evidence or 
for lack of a better word, you know, that you create the opportunity for students to illustrate or talk about their learning. And that allows you as a teacher to gain access to what their thinking is, but also allows yeah. other students in the team to gain access to thinking because so much of what happens in school is left private. So I, I think those are, are points well taken. Um, I want to shift a little bit here and just ask you about, because I know you are uh first and foremost, a learner, uh, something else I learned from you in terms of how important it is to continue to keep growing and learning and staying current with research and all of that. So I want to ask you how your assessment mindset has evolved over the course of your career. Are there things you now think or know uh, when it comes to assessment for learning and feedback that are different or have evolved compared to where you were, say, 10 or 20 years ago? What, what, what does that arc look like for you? Where have you maybe grown, changed, However you want to talk about this, like what, what is the mindset? How has your mindset been impacted over the course of the last uh, 10 to 20 years? So I'd say that the, one of the greatest changes is my deep understanding of, of the motivational impact of assessment on, on students and on, and on the, the need to preserve um, a, the student as in the student, a, a learning mindset that, that the student um, everything that we do with assessment needs to be supporting that student as someone who is capable of learning, who has learned, and will be learning more um, next. So, for example, in in thinking about feedback, um, I have a I teach about feedback as as pointing out what was done well to reinforce for students what they know, um, and then to identify an area that needs needs work and point the way to success without doing the work for the students. So you're doing next step feedback in a way. But but in reality, I think I think the gist of it is that you want students to be looking at at getting feedback at doing something and then getting feedback about it. And that feedback allows them to say, hmm, I didn't think about it that way. Or yeah, that'll make it better. So so think about it this way as as next step feedback. Um, consider this, um, opening students up to new possibilities. And, and I think that, you know, I, I, I used to be really tied, and I still am, to research-based, you know, this practice works, this practice works, this practice works. But at the heart of it all, it's really about the learner saying, I think I can do this. Um, I didn't do it. I didn't do it as well as I wanted to this time, but I can do it better next time. And, and I'm willing to do that. And I think when each learner says that, then we've accomplished what we what we need to do. Yeah, I think uh, important to be research informed, of course, but at the same time, we take our cues from our learners. And if they are demonstrating to us that they are willing to lean back into their learning, take our feedback, try to advance their proficiency, understand themselves as learners, we've accomplished uh, you know, what we need, what we've set out to do, you know, there, there's just very few apps. I, what I have learned over the years is that there's just very few absolutes when it comes to assessment, that so much is context dependent, so much is nuanced. We definitely need to be research informed, but we're paying close attention to how our learners react to mm -hmm. certain situations and certain strategies, I think really helps us uh, take inventory on whether or not we're actually being successful at what we're setting out to do. I want to finish up Jan with a question. Now looking ahead, we've, talked about the arc of your career, where we got it right, where, where we might be getting it wrong or needing more attention. But I want to, I want to look, look ahead now. And I want to ask you to kind of think about where do you think we go next or 
What do you think the next step is in terms of the evolution of our collective assessment literacy, or maybe what are some underexplored areas of assessment and feedback that you still think need some significant attention? So kind of a wide open question here about the future, like where are we going with assessment? What do you think is still getting underexplored? Where does the research need to go? Where does classroom practice need to go? I'll leave it to you to fill in the answer to that. But just when you look ahead, what do you think is next for us in terms of our assessment literacy collectively in education? Um, I, I have two very different um, paths of answers for that. Um, and okay. the, the short one actually is about where I think research might need to go. And that is, um, uh, I am not a researcher. So uh, I, but I, I have questions that I, that I continue to read research to try and answer. And I'm still, and I'm reading and reading and reading and still looking to find more answers to this connection between um, having students adopt a learning orientation to their work, um, mm -hmm. to, to what practices can we put in place in the classroom that that make them um, failure tolerant. That mm -hmm. help them, that that help them to develop the mindset of of I can do this and and I am willing to, and mm -hmm. and I would I would love to see m more research in that area. That's not really an area. That's a huge topic. But uh, right, right. that's my short answer there. And then what I think is next for me. Um, my husband, Steve, and Sue Brookhart and I recently, um, our latest book is called 10 Assessment Literacy Goals for School Leaders. Mm -hmm. And um, we wrote that because we know that the classroom teacher, um, the needs of the classroom teacher um, for knowing what to do assessment-wise are um, in large part um, filtered through the, the um the administration that that we how do we how do we set up professional development who do we hire mm -hmm. what do we look for when we hire um, how do we evaluate what kinds of what kinds of things are we looking for how are we defining what it means to teach well and I think that assessment is still lagging behind in all of those so um, that's a that's not a that's not a bright new future. What's next? That's a what's next. Where do we need to, where do we need to get caught up, so that we can move forward? And so I think both. Um, I think that perhaps in pre-service we don't yet have the level of preparation mm -hmm. um, that that I would like to see in teachers coming in, and then in the first three or four years of teaching, I. I would like to see. I think what's next is a is a more robust push to, to um, to increase assessment um, skills and capabilities in our teachers in their first five years, um, yeah. which means that our administrators need to have enough of a grasp of that to understand who who might need that and and what might be available to help them with that. So um, I, I do think that in in our hiring practices, in in what we what we say we're looking for, um, and in what we evaluate for, and how we and how we help teachers move forward in their assessment practices, those are all to me um, still fields ripe for further um, work. Yeah, 
It is, uh, I often, it is shocking to me, to be honest, uh, in 2022, when I ask participants in workshops, how many of you had any assessment training in your pre-service uh, experience, that the number of hands is increasing, but it's not as many as I would have thought in mm -hmm. 2022. Now, I also asked the follow-up question is in that, for all of you raising your hands, yeah. how many of you were specifically trained on grading? And almost every hand drops. So yeah. I think I think we still have a ways to go. I know it's easy to point the finger, but I think in that, in, you know, it, it is shocking to me that something that has been given so much treatment in the academic research, something that is so prominent in terms of the last two decades in, uh, in terms of education, that we still aren't putting our full weight in our pre-service training uh, behind that. Uh, I think it's something that we still have to uh, keep keep pounding the table about to make sure that early on that there's training uh, in, in pre-service teachers around, you know, just sound assessment practices because it really is the engine uh, that drives everything that we do yeah. in our classroom. So two questions, Jan, as we finish up today. Uh, these are questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. The first one, uh, you can take this in any direction you want to, but quite simply, the question is this, educationally speaking, uh, what keeps you up at night? Grading reform. Yeah, <laughs> I'm with you and on that one. And here's why. Um, people are attacking uh, grade, uh, you know, not attacking, but they are, you know, they are tackling grading practices. And, mm. and so often, so many of the problems with grading practices can be solved with, with, with fixing assessment totally. practices. And so when, when people start with grades, they often end with grades. And, and I'm often working with groups where they've got to the point where they are they're really wrestling with the grading question, but the underlying issues have to do with is my, have I really made some sound decisions about what is formative and what is summative? Mm -hmm. um, have I, have I gathered accurate information? Um, am I, are, are my instruments themselves truly representative of what students um, know and don't know? And do I know what they know and don't know before we get to the grade? And um, those things mm -hmm. are high impact on, on learning. And, mm -hmm. and yet when we jump to let's fix the grades, thinking that we'll fix those other problems, it doesn't work. And so yeah. I, when, I am, when I am working with a group of people, it, it actually literally does keep me up at night thinking about how do we help people go back and, and take care of the issues that, that need to be dealt with first. Yeah, absolutely. Um... You know, listeners, many of you will recognize uh, I, I learned from the best. Those are things that I say continuously, which is grading is assessment. And the if your grading practices follow sound assessment principles, then you'll have no problem with the accuracy in, in how you grade and that your, your grades are only as accurate as the assessments they're based on. So all of that to me, I, I'm with you on that, Jan. Uh, it is uh, to try to do grading reform without addressing the assessment practices is such a superficial way to approach the work and understanding that that assessment is really what drives uh, the assessment practices are what going to drive accurate grading and the accurate reporting of student learning. So I'm 100% with you on that. Okay, finally, let's, uh, let's finish up on a lighter note here. You, uh, I know you are um, living in Port Townsend, Washington at this point, and uh, I love food and I always like to hear about where the best places to eat are. So I'm gonna ask you a simple question, Jan, where's the best place to eat in Port Townsend, Washington? Well, the best place to eat, as defined by the place we like to go to the best. Yeah, there you go. Is, is Siren's Pub. 
Sirens Pub. Okay, tell us about it. Oh, it's a it's a just pub food. Um, it's yeah. on, it hang. It's in a building that hangs over the water. Um, Love the, it. Um, the Salish Sea comes right up to Port Townsend, and <laughs> and it it's you're just right there hanging out over the water, and um, it's busy, it's lively. There's music. Um, mm -hmm. It's great pub food. It's fresh Excellent. seafood. Good beer. Excellent. We like we like all of that. Best thing on the menu to order is. Um. Hmm. What's your favorite? Oh, I'm putting boy. you on the spot. <laughs> um, maybe maybe the salmon burger. Okay. I like the sounds of that. That's great. Yeah. No, I, I would imagine I was envisioning, uh, when I asked the question, uh, envisioning something on the water, something with a view, something that uh -huh. uh, just has that spectacular view. I would imagine, especially in the summer, uh, you get onto the, uh, is there a patio, anything like that? Or is yeah, it just, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine mm -hmm. how wonderful that is. Um, listeners, uh, you can, you can connect with Jan on LinkedIn. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes for Jan's uh, LinkedIn profile. And also I uh, would really encourage you to visit Jan's website, www.janshapui.com. I'll put a link in the show notes as well for all of that. Uh, Jan, it, I, I can't say this enough. So great to see you. Uh, it's been way too long. And uh, again, I, I, I just cannot thank you, Steve, Judy, Rick, uh, the influence you had on my career. Uh, I've just I've learned learned from the best and uh, been you know appreciate you paying it forward to me and and all of the influence that you've had on so many educators around the world. Um, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And aren't we just learning from each other? Isn't that wonderful? It, it is. I, wonderful. I, I learned from you. I have all of your books. So oh, thank, thank you, you for thank you for taking it on. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to address something I see some asserting online that always tends to bother me a little bit. And that is the notion that grades are arbitrary anyway, so we need to get rid of them. Now, there's a few things here. First, I want to say this is coming from, as far as I can tell, a minority of people, a small group of people. So I don't want you to get the wrong idea here and think I'm casting a wide net. But I do see this, you know, enough with the folks who want to justify the idea of, say, going gradeless or ungrading. Now, I don't want to rehash all of that, but I do think the oversimplified way with grades, that the way grades get talked about anyway, is not entirely accurate. Um, and, and this is one of those things where, as I've mentioned many times in the podcast, where you come up the middle, you end up defending yourself on both sides, not arguing against the notion of feedback. No one really is arguing against the notion of feedback. We all know that feedback gets unanimous agreement in the academic literature in terms of its positive impact on student achievement. We all get that. It's important. And as much as some might think that I, I don't know, you know, kind of rail against the whole notion of going gradeless, um, I'm in full support of teachers grading less and focusing on effective feedback and self-assessment and student investment. I would never criticize anyone who goes down that pathway at all. Emphasizing descriptive feedback is one of the hallmarks of the first iteration of my assessment and grading reform, which happened back in the early to mid 2000s. So it's, it's been embedded in what I've done in my own classroom, and it's embedded within the content of almost every book I've ever authored or co-authored. But <laughs> we have an obligation to report the achievement of students to parents, to families, to stakeholders. And that reporting needs to be somewhat efficient. 
We can't act as if the only users of assessment information are students or teachers. Yes, the students might be the primary users, but it's naive to think that we can just ignore the responsibility and not let others know how students have achieved. Like if, if you teach in a public school, it's a publicly funded school. We owe parents, families, and actually the public the information about the success of our system. As a publicly funded school system, all taxpayers and citizens have a right to know if the system is maximizing its impact. And if you work in a private school, you've got tuition paying parents, you've got families, alumni, board, etc., who also have a right to know. So there's always a level of accountability in terms of the work we do. So despite some of the hyperbole and some of the echo chambers that can exist on Twitter and other places, there is a place for grades. But again, as I've said many times on this podcast, the, the idea of a grade can take on many different forms. You want to get rid of letters of the alphabet associated with predetermined percentage increments? I'm with you. We can do that. No problem. But there's going to be some form of summarization and the reporting. That's going to be necessary regardless of what system you have. But here's my point. Regardless of whatever form of reporting you have, the idea that grades are arbitrary I sure hope not. How in the world can any classroom teacher ever say that grades are arbitrary when they're the ones determining the grades? Now, if you want to say something more specific, like percentage-based grades are somewhat arbitrary because when making an indirect scoring inference and using a percentage scale, there's a plus or minus five to six point margin of error. You can say that, sure, but that's not a very sexy tweet, is it? So what I take issue with is the use of the word arbitrary. I mean, regardless, again, of how you report student learning, nothing you do should be arbitrary. Even if you're using a percentage-based grade scale, when making an indirect scoring inference, even when there is a plus or minus five to six point margin of error, you would consume the student's demonstration of learning, use some form of criteria to judge its quality, and then actually determine the percentage-based grade. It would not be arbitrary just because there's a margin of error doesn't make it arbitrary. Arbitrary actually means based on random choice or personal whim rather than any reason or system. Like I don't care what your system is with this point, nothing we do with students, right? Whether it's the assessment, grading, instruction, interventions, nothing we do with students should be arbitrary. So this is where we often can get seduced by hyperbole. There are grades, if you take a very narrow view, there are grades that are percentage-based letter grades. And then there are grades, taking a wider view, which are summary symbols or summary statements that describe learning and highlight the overarching degree to which the student has met the learning goal. We simply cannot dismiss this as part of our job. It's disingenuous to do so or to suggest even in some cynic, that there's some cynical motive for creating a system of reporting. You sometimes hear that online is too, right? Or online, I should say, where people are, you know, as, as if the, the system is this sort of cynically driven kind of idea where we have this responsibility to parents, we have this responsibility to families, we have this responsibility to the community, to the public, right? A single symbol is not the be all and end all. It's not the most descriptive, but I always think about the stop sign. You know, if you're driving anywhere in the world, I use this analogy a lot. If you were driving anywhere in the world and you came across a red octagon, you would know what to do. You would know what to do because the entire world has come to an agreement that a red octagon within the context of driving means stop. Once we have 
a singular symbol like a red octagon that has universal meeting, or meaning, you'll, you'll know what to do and you'll have a flood of information coming to your mind. So if you stopped at a red octagon, you would look around, are there other octagons here? Are there pedestrians? Are there other vehicles? Like you would get sentences worth of information coming into your head because we all have agreement. So it's not the existence of symbols, it's how we define them. And I, I know I've said that on the podcast before. Grades are going to be as meaningful or as meaningless as we make them. You know, we don't stand outside the system of reporting as victims of the system. Our expertise matters. And we have, uh, in a, in, we have to own the fact that we have a disproportionate amount of say in what grades mean. The greater system, the district, the state, the province, et cetera, that they may determine the optics or the symbols or even the calculations, but we're the ones who input the substance. Even when I was the most traditional grader, the zero guy, the late penalty guy, when I was that back in the early days of my career, when I was that punitive, misguided grader, my grades weren't arbitrary. They were based on maybe flawed logic or flawed practices, but they weren't arbitrary. I guess my larger point here in, in expressing some of my frustration is two things. One, Let's refrain from the hyperbole so we can actually have a serious conversation about the most effective and efficient ways to report. And two, and this is probably more important, nothing we ever do should be arbitrary. In my experience, what teachers do, no matter where I've been, no matter where I've worked, in my experience, what teachers do, even if it's on the fly, even if it's an on the fly adjustment, nothing teachers do is arbitrary. It's my experience that everything teachers do is intentional. Okay, that's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. Also, please email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com if you have questions for Assessment Corner or if you have any suggestions or feedback for me about the podcast. And a reminder, check the show notes, please, for all of the links for the upcoming professional learning events this spring. Uh, next time, my guest is going to be uh, Tim Stevenson. Tim is a friend, a science teacher, and the host of the Science 360 podcast. So of course, we are going to talk science. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course, but a rating and review on any platform will help grow the podcast's reach. And if you like what you hear, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends, your colleagues, or on social media. I would really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone.